this evening I'm very, very happy to introduce to you Onika, but because I want to Africanize her, I'm going to call her Onika. Okay. Onika Cornelius and her daughter Samara Cornelius. Uh, Onika and Samara are a powerful um, duo, mother and daughter. I like that they are very willing to share their story and to let us know what happened in their life, what mistakes they've made, and how they are repairing their relationship and the steps they took to repair their relationship. So without further ado, I'm going to ask Ms. Onika to introduce herself briefly, and then I'll go to Samara. Awesome. Can everyone hear me? Mm -hmm. We can hear you. Okay, great. So first, Dolly, let me let me again say thank you for extending the invitation to us. Um, I, at the end of the day, I am a mother. I am an entrepreneur and a business owner uh, in consulting. I'm also a coach. And I am, by nature, I am wired to teach and to share. So this is di directly part of what I believe would know that I was called to do, right? The Lord really put me here. Um, it's always interesting because I think the reality of it is, you know, many times when the Lord wants you to teach something and he wants you to share an experience, of course, you have to go through it first. So I'm honored to be here to be able to share the walk, the testimony and the healing and the joy that has come out of the work we have been doing, are doing and quite honestly are still doing uh, as a family and as individuals. And so Part of that is I have been blessed. I have three amazing children and this this youngest blessing that came into our lives in our home 18 plus years ago is Samara Noel Cornelius. I am I am excited to be her mother. I learned from her uh, probably as much if not more than she learns from me and I'm excited to be here to support her quite honestly. I'm here to share with all of the mothers and fathers by extension about our journey but at the end of the day, this is her story to tell and it's her journey. And it's been as as tough as it's been, as hard as it's been, it has been more beautiful. So I'm, I'm happy to be here. And with that, I will introduce to you all Miss Samara Noel Cornell. Um, yeah, so my name is Samara. Um, I'm her daughter. Um, yeah, I'm just really excited to just be open about you know everything that's that's happened for us i think when you go through things you don't really think about how it can help other people you just think about how you went through it and just try to do the best with what you have so i wasn't aware that my story or just you know sharing some of the testimonies that we have would be such an inspiration to you guys and such an inspiration so much so that you asked us to come speak. So I'm just incredibly humble and grateful that I get to be here and that I just get to, you know, answer questions and just provide whatever knowledge that I can. Um, I'm an observer. I observe what my mom does. I observe how people speak. So I'm still very new, but I am very excited to, you know, just be a part of this platform. Thank you, Samara. So I'm going to start with Onika, right? Sure. And I'm going to ask you to, to briefly describe to us what your childhood was and how your upbringing was and how, uh, and then I'll, 
I'll ask the next question. So I'll just ask, how was your ch uh, childhood and how was your upbringing? How did you experience yeah. your parents? Mm -hmm. That is a, a very, very powerful question because if the truth of the matter is right, Dolly, that that is where the story starts. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I I was raised in, in a home with both parents until my parents uh, divorced when I was about eight or nine years old. Uh, I am the child of an addict. My father was a drug addict. Uh, and some people would say probably highly functioning, but the reality of it is uh, he was not. Uh, he was also a an abuser. So I grew up in a home in, in a home where there was abuse. Uh, I saw my mother be abused quite frequently, and it skewed my vision, right, and my experience of what it means to be part of a family. Uh, as a result of you know my father's addiction, his his drug abuse. Uh, that, as you can imagine, created a household that was very unstable, very scary. Uh, just there was a lot of fear. It was very much about let's not push his buttons. Let's not get him hyped up. Let's steer clear. And the reality of it is when you are the children or you're in the household with an addict, there is no way that you can create a perfect environment that does not trigger them. Um, whether that's trigger them to acts of violence or, you know, um, arg arguing, things of that nature, let alone using. Uh, my father was a heavy substance abuser, so he drank, he smoked, he uh, did intravenous drugs, heroin and things of that nature. So it just created an environment, first of all, where seeing those that paraphernalia and those things in the house was common. Uh, knowing what they were for, but then also knowing what the byproduct and consequences were mm -hmm. of that. And in many instances, those consequences involved him hitting and hurting or injuring my mother. So for me, that threw me into caregiver mode at a very, very young age. Mm -hmm. uh, I still have memories of being five, six, seven years old and making sure that she got to the emergency room, uh, nursing her wounds because she had to go to work on Monday. Uh, taking care of my brother. I have a brother who is four years younger than me. And so I immediately became his caregiver, his protector. Uh, so it made me grow up very, very quickly. Uh, it impacted, of course, as you can imagine, how I saw marriage, for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It impacted how I saw men. And that, that took something for me to, to walk out for quite some time. Uh, but what it did was it created an environment where I didn't get to be a child. Mm -hmm. I was thrust into taking care of others very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. I was also in an environment where because there was so many, there were so many trauma inducing events that were happening, for lack of a better word, I became used to, I don't want to use the word comfortable, but used to trauma, mm -hmm. traumatic events. Um, you know, not knowing where my father is, not knowing when a debate or a question was going to escalate into an act of violence or something happening and then that escalating to us, you know, spending the night in the emergency room. Uh, it also created an environment that, that produced secrets. So mm. I don't ever remember my mother telling me, hey, don't tell anybody what happened here. Don't tell anybody what happened to my eye, my face, my arm. Um, don't tell anybody what happened, you know, what was going on with daddy this weekend it was understood that we didn't speak about those things. And so because
because of that air of secrecy, there was no place to go and to take those experiences. So you fast forward to being a mother, uh, not wanting to be in a household where uh, your children see abuse, expect abuse, where that becomes commonplace. Uh, you wind up going, I feel like, from one extreme to the other, right? Uh, for me, it led to a lot of what I call controlling behavior, right? How do I control environments? How do I control people in a way that I am able to stay safe? Because for the first several years of my life, the environment and some of the people in my life were not safe. Mm-hmm. So that it, it gives a bit of a foundation. Um, I'm blessed in that, uh, you know, a Drug addiction is not something that took hold in the next generation for my brother and I, but because we saw so many negative consequences, the truth is it still impacted us, right? In mm-hmm. other ways, uh, it impacted how we raised our children, how how we disciplined our children, how we showed up in marriage and relationship, how we dealt with anger or didn't deal mm-hmm. with anger, mm-hmm. uh, how we dealt with secrecy, right? Um, you know, the thought that what happens in our home stays in our home. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. And and so it's, 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 it's all of those things that, that really affected me very, very early on. And it affected my parenting, for sure. Okay. Samara, how did you experience... Okay, so there's an event that happened, but before the event, right? How did you experience your mom and your dad? And just to... Um, you know, just to pick up on what Onika said, it is very true that your formative years are the first few years of your life. So definitely, number one, you are parentified, meaning that you are made to be the caregiver of your, you know, your younger sibling, but not just your younger sibling, you now became a caregiver to your mom, who was the adult in the relationship. Uh, and also you experienced trauma because you saw, you witnessed domestic violence, um, and, you know, there was a lot of chaos. So your formative years were kind of chaotic, right? So now, Samara, how did you experience your mom before the event and, you know, everything started changing? Um, yeah, so I, I did. I grew up um, very different from my mom. I think very different from a lot of kids. It was mainly just me. I have two older siblings. Um, but by the time I was about five or six, my sister was 18. So where my memory mostly picks up, it was just me. I have another brother who is 34 or older. He, he's old. He was gone by the time my memory, you know what I'm saying, picks up. So um, for a lot of my childhood, I remember being on my own. Also, mm-hmm. I do know that the first few years of my childhood that I can recollect, I was a lot closer to my dad because when right around the time I was born up until about five, my mom was working a lot. So she was traveling. So I was mainly, if I wasn't with my dad, I was with my uncle, um, her brother and his family. So I didn't have, in my earlier childhood, I don't think I had as strong of a connection or a bond with my mom as I did with my dad. Um, just because me and my dad had spent more time together. Even when you don't have memory of things when you're younger, like they say, like that age of like two, three, four, even though you don't remember it, it creates those habits. It creates those family dynamics. So just having my dad around a little bit more than my mom was, 
um, when I was younger, I felt more connected to him, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't have strong memories of mommy from that time. I have more strong memories of dad. But picking up to where she had kind of stopped traveling a little bit later into elementary school, I don't really remember a lot of, if I'm trying to compare it to the relationship and the intimacy that I have with my parents now, I just don't remember having it a lot when I was younger. Um, just because they were both working so much and having me just being the only kid, it was more so just mommy and daddy work, we come home, we wouldn't really, we wouldn't eat together all the time, sometimes we would, but it was very much so, there was a period where all three of us were very much so on our own. Um, that's just kind of the dynamic that comes with being an only kid. I call it being like a professional third wheel because that's really how it is. <laughs> it's always like, you know, mommy and daddy or like, you know, them and then me, even if we would go out to dinner, you know, you, you know the term grown folks conversation or you don't inter interject when, you know, grown folks are talking. So I don't remember having like a really strong relationship with either one of them when I was younger, but I would say, you know, the description that my mom gave of her being, I wouldn't say too controlling, but being very much so a caretaker, very much so, um, you know, trying to keep things a certain way. I do have a sense of that, that being like the culture of our house for like a, a very long time. Mm -hmm. I, do, I do recall that. So so what what did not work for you? Because these were your parents and they were doing uh, what they knew how to do, right? So mom was trying to be the opposite of what she experienced growing up. And um, as we say, children don't come with manuals. And like, and, and, and also there were no podcasts. Like nowadays, I think with social media, mm -hmm. there's so much information out there that helps us, you know, in bringing up our children. So Samara, what what is it that did not work for you or that that made you feel like you know there's a disconnect that made you not stable you know what i mean yes so there's there's a few things number one mm -hmm. um i don't think it really matters how great of a relationship you have with your parents no one wants their only relationships to be with their parents <laughs> and i think that was something that was a big element of my childhood i was very much so isolated um, just feeling really kind of ostracized in school, not really having the means to communicate with friends or peers outside of school. Um, even my brother and my sister were kind of off doing their own thing. My cousins, I, I have a very, I have a cousin that I'm very close with. I really do think of her as more of a sister. She's around the same age as me, but um, still not really having that much communication outside of being able to see each other at like family functions and stuff like that. Um, so I, I guess a main part of it was just, just ostracization. There's only so much you can relate to your parents. There's only so much you can, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're still adults, they have each other. And it was really in a lot of instances, just like me. I, I feel like I was always a plus one in like some situations and some scenarios. So I think that was one thing. Um, another thing, it was just that for my parents, my education was a very big priority where I was going to school, what the plan was for me to go to school. And I don't think in any means that should ever be negated. I do think education is a great, um, it's very important, especially when you're young. But 
I don't think that my parents placed a lot of emphasis on the social aspect. It's also important to have kids that are socially acclimated, that, you know, do things with their peers and stuff like that. And I just didn't do a lot um, that I can recall if there was an instant. I think I had one friend sleep over in kindergarten and that did not go well. And from then on, it was just kind of understood that sleepovers were not a discussion. They weren't don't ask someone to come sleep over because the answer is going to be no. So also around the time that I was growing up, every kid had a phone. That wasn't really how things worked in my parents' generation, but um, how it worked in mine, every, you know what I'm saying? You did most of your conversating at home. When you're not a part of those conversations, especially when you're in a friend group and you're not, it, it becomes very easy for you to be kind of separated. So I started very on trying to ask and nudge for, you know what I'm saying, that level of communication and access to my peers, which was pretty much always met with a no, or a, you know what I'm saying, we don't allow that, we don't, you know, and it, it was just that juggle of trying to be respectful and trying to respect what your parents are saying, because you don't want to argue with them, you don't want to be separate. I've never not loved my parents or never not wanted to be close with them. But having that, I feel like for a long time, that was a lot of the friction that we had. It was the fact that I had felt alone for a very long time. And so I was kind of yearning for those connections from other people um, that weren't just from family. And when I tried to do that, it wasn't always supported. So I think for a while, that was like kind of like the main thing that kind of like caused me to kind of pull back or not really want to, you know what I mean, converse with them. And then eventually I started, you know, doing it on my own, making Instagram accounts and stuff like that, just to try to, you know, keep some element of social experience alive. But like my mom said, secrets create distance. So here's the this, you know, line of communication I'm having with this, this, this person, I can't tell you because I'm not supposed to be, I'm not supposed to be conversing on this platform or, you know what I'm saying? Hey, I got invited to do this, but I can't tell you I got invited because I can't tell you how I got invited mm -hmm. because you know what I'm saying? So it was just, those things just kind of created more and more just distance and more, I think, you know, friction. And then where my mom, she had the household that she grew up in that kind of controlled to her being a caretaker and being more controlling. What it was for my dad was more so just that I was his, not his only daughter, but I was his first daughter that he had seen grow continuously. Um, so I think that level of protection that a dad has over his daughter is, it, it's never gonna stop. Whether it's protecting you from friends, it's protecting you from, you know, weird, creepy men, protecting you from anyone online, you know what I'm saying? So he was always kind of, you know, protection, 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 protection. Um, and as a kid, I want to say I don't, I would say that I was mature for my age just because I grew up around adults, really only ever understanding adults. I never understood kids. But I could understand adults to a certain degree. So it was kind of that juggling between like, you know, I understand where they're coming from. I understand what they're saying. I want to respect that. But at the same time, I am still, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15. I still want to be able to do these things. I still want to be able to connect with my peers and be able to have these experiences, but I can't. So I would say that created, I think, for a few years, a lot of 
distance and tension um, with there even being some instances where, you know, I would have the Instagram, I would get caught with Instagram. I would have the Instagram, I would get caught the Instagram. And then there would be like that rift again. And then we'd come back close together and then there'd be a rift again. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So what did that lead to? So, so I can imagine you're a young kid and mom is trying to, pro- dad is trying to protect you. Mom is trying to protect you and to also make sure that you're not, you know, that you, you have like a guideline, right? Like, mm-hmm. Um, you're not just all over the place, right? She's trying to make sure that you're structured. That's the word I was looking for. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to do all this. You can get where they're coming from. But on the other hand, you said you're isolated. You, don't, you, you, you only had one sleepover in kindergarten and that was it. And educational such an emphasis. So what did this lead to? Um, it led to a few things. Um, so first it led to me completely having a full-blown identity crisis and just wrapping my identity up in how well I perform, how well I do in school, because that was all I had. Something that I am still, I still have not worked through or fully had a breakthrough on right now. Um, It was, you know, I, I didn't do a lot of, I didn't, well, I didn't do any extracurriculars. I wasn't doing things outside of school. School was really the only thing that I ever had and i was always good at it i was always getting told how good at it i was or from very young on i was part of the gifted program or when i got to middle school i became really good at like you know what i'm saying i became very good at like crafts and things like that so not being exposed to other things made me feel like school was the only thing and it was the only place where i had value i had meeting where I was good at it where I could, you know what I'm saying? It was, you know, I know I can't do this. I can't go here. I can't talk to these people, but I can get an A. And if I can't get an A, I'm going to, I'm going to do everything I can to do the best that I can possibly. And you know, so it led to, I think there was a period of time where I would spend, I would come home from school, work on, I would, I would work till I didn't sleep. I, I was incredibly, I was a workaholic in middle school, which is not healthy at all by any means and there were many conversations that like my parents and other adults in the family tried to have like you know Samara you can relax you can you know you don't have to do all of that and but it was just very hard for me to hear that because it was like if I don't have this then what do I have I didn't have anywhere to really escape to didn't have anyone to escape to anyone to really that I felt like I could you you know confide in um so that it led to that for sure. I, I had a lot of issues trying to work through that. I'm getting a little bit better with it now, but it started there. But also just having a completely warped sense of self when you feel like you're always the odd one out. And not only that, not only feeling like you're the odd one out, but always feeling alone and lonely in your own head, it, it's not healthy. It's not healthy for an adult, but it's it's definitely not healthy for a kid, especially when that's when those first negative thoughts start to come in. When you first start to become aware of, you know, your self-esteem, kids are saying things, you know, you start to become, you start to notice all these differences. Like, I would say there was a period where I did not like my parents. I didn't like myself. It was just very, it was dark. And that just kind of all, you know, snowballed and kind of culminated, culminated 
um, into this, just this phase where I didn't know who I was. I didn't understand what I was good for besides performing and performances. Didn't know how to fully, you know, communicate or connect. Middle school, I did have a good, decent amount of friends, but during the school day, there wasn't a lot of communication at home. I did have another sleepover though, but they didn't sleep here. I slept at their house for my like last day of eighth grade. Um, but after eighth grade, I got moved to Whitewater um, in high school where I didn't know anybody. And it was kind of like alone again, by myself again. And that just kind of, yeah. Okay, so mom, yeah. let's let's go back to mom. Yeah. So um, you did not allow Samara to have a phone, right? And I know that you are trying to um, protect her from exposure to things that you know are not uh, appropriate for a child. Yeah. Uh, looking back, would you handle things a little differently? So there are a couple of things to also give context, and then I'm going to come back to that question because that's a great question. You know, mm -hmm. one of the things that also colored my upbringing was that um, after my parents divorced, my mother did have somebody she was dating um, who she brought into our home, and he molested me. And so for me, there was no place that was safe. So my focus was how do I make home safe? And once you realize that, you know what, there are things that you can't control, right? There are people that come into your home that you may trust that may harm a child. Uh, it changes you. Mm -hmm. uh, my husband and I, you know, one of the things that we were really clear on because we had started to see how detrimental social media was to young people, uh, having access not just to social media and platforms, but text chats and things of that nature and sharing with her and trying our best to communicate that there is no way that we will ever be able to ensure that who you're chatting with texting with and who they are saying that they are is who they really are and not wanting her to have exposure to whether that was pornography on phones um videos violence all of those things, right? We we wanted to make sure that we had some semblance of protection on her, right? If we think back over the last years, we have heard stories of young young girls, young boys as well, uh, connecting with people online and agreeing to meet them, and these babies never coming home. Uh, you know, we 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 saw the impact of cyberbullying of young people that were so ridiculed that they were self-harming or there were things that were going on in the school and the group chats and how the bullying moved from it being in the hallway to online and young people being so scared and so fearful and not having any place to take and 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 how do you how do you modulate and moderate those feelings how do you say that you know what there's this stranger that is bullying me or stalking me and so we were we tried to be very very careful and so we did not want to expose her to a phone very early. Now you asked the question, would I have done things differently? I think we would have done a better job at communicating that. Uh, one of the things that I know that has happened, and I, I'm, I'm assuming that I'm not the only parent, you know, when we want to protect our children, many times our passion and our urgency and our concern, they read that as anger. So 
when the conversation would feel really tense and emotional, she read that, and I'm assuming, so Samara, keep me honest on that, like, okay, they're going to yell at me again. And this is going to, this is going to spiral into 10 reasons why I can't do this. Um, my husband and I, we were very focused on, yes, her education, because we knew this child that the Lord had given us. It's like, hey, Lord, how do we protect her and be a good steward over her life and her opportunities? Um, how do we make sure that she is exposed to people that, you know, have varied worldviews, right? We did not want her to be, to have a narrow point of view, right? Whether that's of just the West and the US, we were believers, right? And so how do we also give her our faith in love, right? So, so how do we do all of these things? Best of intentions, sometimes very poor execution. And so hearing that, you know, it's like, okay, the protection and the love that we both wanted to put on you felt so confining, right? This, this cocoon of love for her felt like a jail cell. That was hard to hear. It was hard to hear. Um, but also understanding for her, she was, it, for all intents and purposes, tomorrow was an only child, right? Our, our two oldest children are in their, are now in their thirties, but then were in their twenties. They were, they had gone on and were living their life. And so she was thrust into adulthood early, right? She was always with us. She traveled with us. If we went on vacations or out of the country, she was with us. So she is just wound up creating a young person that is extremely comfortable, like she said, with adults and having those conversations. But then you put her in a middle school environment or a high school environment and it's like, okay, well, why are kids acting like that? And they don't communicate clearly. And like, why don't they just, you know, like state their intentions. And I'm like, this, this kid is in eighth grade. Like they just mm -hmm. learned how to string words together to make a complete sentence, right? Mm -hmm. Just sort of trying to temper her expectations. But once she started to tell us how lonely she was, you know, it was hard. It was hard because this was coming up right as the pandemic was starting to rear its head. And so she was not in a good place mentally or emotionally as much as we, cared about her academics we did not want it to become so ingrained and embedded in her identity that if she didn't bring home that a she thought she wasn't loved right we want we did not want that to be the message but sitting in her shoes i can imagine if that's the only thing if that's the language i have to speak for them to hear me then i'm going to make sure that i master this language mm -hmm. and so you know looking back i i would have you know we would have found different ways potentially different outlets to to help her socialize and get connected to young people that were like her um because at the same time she's also an introvert right so there's this catch 22 she wants mm -hmm. to be she wants to be like near people <laughs> that that's our joke now right it's like we don't mind being in proximity to people but noticing now even how sometimes unsettling it can be to just be around a, a lot of people mm -hmm. um, because her natural state is, you know, reading and just being very self-focused. But now what I'm seeing is that became, that may have been a coping mechanism mm -hmm. as opposed to a natural wiring for her. Yes. Right. So yeah. now we're like, okay, well, how do we unravel some of that? Learn some of the different things that you like. And the journey for us has been, the truth of the matter is we cannot put her in a bubble and protect her from every single thing in the world. Mm -hmm. As scary mm -hmm. as that is for her father, as unsettling as that has been for me in the past as her mother, 
it has been about, okay, well, God, we, we trust that you have given us stewardship over this kid. So help us do it differently so that she gets what she needs outside of us, mm -hmm. outside mm -hmm. of the relationships that she currently has in ways that are healthy and teach us how to also communicate with her where there's trust so that she does not ever have to go like I did into a place of secrecy. Like I can't tell anyone anything mm -hmm. to it being, you know what, I, I can tell mommy and daddy anything. Now they may not agree. Mm -hmm. We may not like it, but she can still say it. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so for us, we had to kind of work through that because we also, both of us grew up in the culture that, okay, once an adult says it, don't, don't, don't come with a bunch of questions. You know, mm -hmm. she's our why child. Like you can't do that. Why? Because we said so, <laughs> you know, because we said no, but why are you saying no? Like mm -hmm. explain what part don't you understand the N or the O? <laughs> um, yeah. And for this child, it was just very different. And I was much more of a command and control parent with her, her older siblings. And I didn't expect or allow quite honestly, that level of independence, right? Mm -hmm. It was, it's my job to keep you safe. It is my job to take care of you. It is my job to provide for you. And because to those for me, because I did not have those things, having them and, and giving them were how I showed love. That doesn't okay. necessarily mean that that was how my children received or needed to receive love from me. So mm -hmm. I had to learn the give and take and the dance of loving her differently from her older sister, mm -hmm. loving her older sister differently than I loved her brother, and let's be clear, was not always successful, um, but had to learn because this one was built different. And everything mm -hmm. we knew in the past, up until the incident of self-harm, we had done what we knew, knew to do, right? Best of intentions, yes. right? Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. But not the outcome that we desired or wanted. Yeah. And knowing that we had to, we had to change so that mm -hmm. we could create an environment where she could heal. And um, Monica, the other thing is, I think your two older children also had each other, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So I think that that was another aspect of it. They had each other growing up, but Samara was alone because they had left the the nest, right? So she was lonely. So the others, even if they felt the way Samara felt, at least they had each other, you know? So I think that brings a little bit of comfort for them. Now, Samara, so here you are, you feel isolated, you feel that um, your, your, identity, your identity is wrapped in your grades, right? And you are feeling a little bit odd, like you're the odd one out in school everywhere because now you have uh, kids in school and I can imagine maybe they were talking about something overnight and then you go to school and they're continuing yeah, no the conversation <laughs> and you have no idea what they're talking about and then they get tired of always bringing you up to speed right or actually and, I would just pretend I would pretend that I knew because uh, just pop culture became such a big part of I remember fourth fifth grade that's when like music became important like if you were going to keep up a conversation you had to know you had to know this trend this app this person and i i knew nothing so i started just pretending like i would just laugh along or i would piece together because i'm also i'm, a, I'm an extremely vigilant person which is more of a curse and a blessing so i would you know make notes of 
this song or this person and I would come home and I would research it. I wasn't completely in the stone age. Like we had laptops and things like that, but it was just mostly for homework. So I would come home, I would Google things, I would look things up and then just try to look as up to speed as I, as I possibly could. But everyone knew I didn't have a phone. Okay. So now I'm just thinking now all these things are going on and then the pandemic struck, right? And your mom just mentioned just now about self-harm. So tell us, take us to where it got to the self-harm. Yes. So the self-harm incident actually happened before the pandemic. So just to kind of like paint the picture I had, like I said, in middle school, I was more so just dealing with a lot of emotional feelings, but at least in school, I did have a very nice group of friends. Um, But ninth grade i didn't go to the school where i knew most of the people that i went to school with i went to a completely different school in a different district um so i started high school pretty much alone eating lunches alone really being alone um at this point i did i think i had made the second instagram so i did have an instagram account but even with i think with kids it's very much so out of sight out of mind if you're not seeing the person or you're not having a consistent relationship with them the relationship just fizzles so not having still because instagram wasn't the same as really having a phone i know it sounds like it's the same but it, it wasn't so just still not having the level of contact that i used to have with being at school with certain people and then still having limited um communication the the really strong friendships that I had formed in middle school just started to fizzle. So by the time September, October hit of 2019, I would say that I was pretty much just completely alone. I had one good friend of mine who went to high school with me, but when she got to high school, she kind of everything clicked and fell into place and she knew people and you know what I'm saying? She found herself and she and I, I, I just didn't. Um, also, being black in a predominantly white school is not, it's not, it's just not easy. Um, another thing that I failed to notice, um, failed to mention was that from a very young age, I had scoliosis. And as I got older, it just got worse. And I don't mean just like a little, cur- like, I'm not even just talking about the aesthetics of it. I was in pain every day, all day. Walking was painful for me. Getting up was painful for me. Bending over was painful for me. So you're dealing with all of these things, these natural issues that you have with your body and how you show up and you have this thing that you cannot fix. You have this thing that other people notice that you can't fix. Um, You're only wearing hoodies and things like that to try to hide and cam up so you're not confident. Um, So it was just a culmination of all of these things. Like I said, my pain, it was becoming difficult to make it through the school day because in high school you start walking to every class and it's a really big campus. So I was in pain a lot. My body image issues being completely isolated. My cousin who I was very close with, we, me and her both, we talk about it to this day that that was a time where me and her were also very different, similar to my friend. Um, my cousin, her name is Gabby. She went to high school and she hit it off. She blossomed. You know, she was beautiful, she was popular, you know, she had all of these friends, whereas me, I I didn't have a lot of interaction. I ate lunch alone or I didn't eat lunch and I sat in the library and things like that. So that just kind of set the stage of what those first four to five months of high school looked like. 
um reading leading up to the accident uh not the accident but the incident was holiday break my parents had went away for their anniversary and i don't know how or why i'm just gonna call it god but my instagram had popped up on my mom's phone and, and they had just got home like literally that day they had just got home from their um anniversary trip and my mom you know kind of confronted me about it and you know it got heated it it just kind of wasn't a great night for for any of us and i just kind of i had been i had cut previously i don't think i mentioned that like mm -hmm. about less than a year prior like if this is december back in january there was an incident where i had told my mom that i had been cutting on a few occasions but i had not cut since i told her so you know kind of all these bad feelings are built up with no healthy or unhealthy way to cope and then again you don't have, have any relationships and while i didn't have a great relationship with my parents it was the only relationship i really had so then having the incident with the instagram come up and then knowing okay well they're going to be mad at me they're going to be upset they're frustrated with me like we're not going to talk this through because we didn't have the tools to communicate with each other um like we do now so back then it was very much so like you know like she said you know they're yelling at me they're angry and just feeling like i i didn't have there was nowhere i could escape to there was no one i could go talk to i couldn't get on the phone and i didn't have any of my siblings numbers so there wasn't anyone to call and say hey this is what's going on or any friend to go hey you know this is what's going on so i think i just kind of you know i i'd had enough and i don't necessarily think my intent was to end my life. I think my I think I just didn't care. I just did it. I, I took um about a bottle of pills. I think they said it was maybe 40 or 50. I'm not sure. But I didn't know if I would die. I didn't I don't even think I cared at that point. I was like, something will happen. It's better than what's happening now. So I took them, I took a couple melatonins and I lied down to go to sleep, but it didn't sit well. I started throwing up very violently. Um, my dad came to the bathroom and he kind of saw the color and was like, you know, what are you throwing up right now? And I was kind of forced to, you know, just show the bottle and stuff like that. And then we went to the hospital. So that was, I believe, December 29th, 2019. So right before the new year. Um, and I spent about, I mean, bless the Lord. I, I came out of it completely unscathed, unharmed for the amount of damage that my liver could have, um, you know, endured. I'm very lucky to still be here and to not only be here, but to be here and have like pretty much no evidence of what happened in my body, which is amazing. Um, Cause the first two days were rough, but I feel like by the third day, it did such a sharp 180 um, that we were all just kind of blessed to see what had happened. But following that, I didn't even get to go home. I had to go to a psychiatric facility um, where I stayed with a lot of other girls where, you know, I kind of felt guilty. I was like, well, these, these are people who have been molested, who have been abused. These are people who are, this is their third, fourth time here. They've been struggling with this for so long. And sometimes there's almost this guilt of, okay, well, I only went through this or I only dealt with this. So why, you know what I'm saying? You know, you kind of feel overdramatic or you feel like, you know, so I dealt with that while I was in there, but I think really the whole experience was just traumatizing. That that's the best. It's a used word, but that's that's the best way I can put it. 
leaving that environment and then still not even being able to come home or not even being able to, you know, at least see my parents those first, those first three days out of the hospital was, it was hard. And we had to, we had to walk through that, the three of us together. So, mm -hmm. you know, leaving that incident, I went back to school and was literally in school for maybe a month and a half, half two months, and then the pandemic hits. And it was also in perfect timing because um, right as I got out the hospital was when I started to make friends at, at, at high school. It was when I started to make friends in art class, was when I, I got invited to, to the senior prom. One of them wanted to take me to the senior junior prom as their plus one and stuff like that. But again, no phone, no communication. I actually did, I don't even know if my parents know, I did have an opportunity to have a cell phone that someone wanted to give me so that I could talk, but I turned it down because our priority really was trying to, I was trying to repair my relationship with my parents as best as I knew how. Um, and like you said, secrets, whether you share them or not, they just have a way of showing themselves. Mm -hmm. They may not always show themselves in their entirety, but there's going to be, you feel it. So yeah, as I'm building these relationships and stuff and you know, finally getting a little bit more comfortable, the pandemic hit and then we just never went back to school. And I think that period that my mom is talking about where I really was communicating just how alone I was, because you can be, you can feel lonely, but not necessarily be alone. I both felt lonely and was alone. It wasn't my feelings. It wasn't, you know what I'm saying? Oh, this is just how I proceed. No, when the pandemic hit, especially I couldn't, we couldn't see our family we weren't texting, I wasn't texting anybody and things like that. I, I was home, I was playing the game and I was sleeping. I, I, would, I entered a very, I would say that summer was probably some of the hardest months of my life. Um, not wanting to go back down the route of self-harm, obviously I'm still healing myself, but not having really anywhere to go, you know? So that was, that was, that was, I would say that was even harder than coming out of what we had come out of. Mm -hmm. But, you know, through that, a gift also of the pandemic was that forced proximity I had with my mother. Me and her mm -hmm. became so close when you talk about, you know, the relationship that we built, that is the result of us being with each other all day, every day, whether we wanted to see each other, whether we had anything to say, it was me and it was her 24 seven for at least the first two years of the pandemic. And what that did was it, it forced us to talk because who else were we, you know what I'm just saying? Who else were we going to talk to? And I finally, once you have something like what had happened in January happened, it's kind of like, there's nothing that's off limits. There's nothing, there's nothing too taboo or too provocative or too embarrassing to talk about. You know, mm -hmm. I, I've just got out of the hospital. I've just had a suicide attempt. Let's just talk about it. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? The hard, hard part is out of the way. How do we just, you know, kind of get back? So yeah, like my mom said, that really was where I was like, look, I, I understand what you and daddy are saying, but I was so lonely. I was by my, myself. I, I didn't have anybody that coupled with just the normal woes and emotions of being a teenage girl. It, it just, it magnified it. And you know what I'm saying? Just kind of having the conversation like, look, 
I understand you're the parent. When I'm asking you why, I'm not being disrespectful. It's just, I need to understand why this is. Like, I think I very clearly had once said, I was like, look, if your no is a no, that's fine, but it can't just be because I said so anymore. That's not gonna work. And I think, I remember that day, we were sitting on the back porch and I, I was talking to them and I was like, you know, it's not disrespect, but your no just meaning no, that's not gonna work. It, it's just not gonna, it's not gonna be enough. So, you know, we kind of repaired and started working through that kind of like the early fall. And I eventually, I think I saw someone ask when I finally got a phone. Also, someone asked how old I am. I'm 18. I turn 19 next March. But I got a phone um, that year, actually. Yes, 2020. Um, it started with, I, I started to, I moved to online school. I didn't go back to the high school. And I moved to online school and I think I started wanting, I wanted an iPad so that I could take notes. And they were doing like, there was, I was like, you know what? Let's give this phone thing one more try. I was like, I bet if I can put it together and I can persuade them, like maybe I can make this work. And I did, I, I did a whole presentation. I put together costs. I was like, here are the pros and cons. And I believe it was, it was three days before your birthday, mommy. I believe it was either October 10th or October 9th that I got the green flag and daddy had agreed that I could get both the phone and the iPad, but I had to pay for the phone, but I still got it. So yeah, and that was kind of, from that fall, I think we had even repaired our relationship so much to I think that, you know, my mom and my parents, anytime there was an incident where we got in trouble, it was always detrusting. Don't keep secrets don't like more so than just the consequences of what you did it was more so what it represented mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying so, so i think even for them even with them dealing with the deceit that i had put them through by not letting them know that i had the instagram i do think the conversations um allowed them to at least understand where i was coming from and i said multiple times i was like it's not an excuse i'm not attempting to excuse or belittle what I did, you guys put up a rule, I broke it. That is what it is, that's black and white. But here's some of the insight, here's what I was going through, here's what I was dealing with. So you understand it wasn't just a rebellious, I wanna do what I wanna do, it was no, I need this, I need something. Mm -hmm. So I think once we had kind of had those conversations, I can't tell you how many times mm -hmm. I remember us rehashing and unhashing and unboxing and asking questions, you know, we had a lot of conversations like that. I think that even though it had only been a, like six, seven, eight months since this whole thing had happened, that by the time I was ready to, you know, kind of bring it to them again and ask for a phone that we were kind of all on the same page. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I got a phone like right around that October. And one thing about my parents, and I will say that when I got the phone, there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, you have to put the phone here, you have to turn the phone off. You know, it was, you know, we're trusting you to have this. They let me have social media. They let me have Instagram. They let me have Snapchat. It was just, you know, I think also my parents maybe gained some respect for me and knowing that I am young, but I, I am mature. And them kind of understanding that, you know, look, we are putting these, we are putting these guidelines here it is your spot and we are trusting you not to break them. Cause I think that's kind of the, the, the bridge between being a child and then getting older, at least in a parent's eyes, it's the difference between I'm not gonna let you do this and then I'm, I'm trusting you not to do this. 
So by the time I got a phone, I think that we really did have that strong level of trust between each other. Like, I'm trusting you that you're going to let me have this and not with contingencies, not, oh, you can only have the phone between 6 to 7.30 on Mondays and Tuesdays. It was very much so like a, you know, it, it felt good. I'll say that. I think I actually cried that day. I think I actually cried <laughs> because it was just such a, something so small, right? But it, it just felt like it was such a big moment and such a big step for the three of us mm -hmm. that I, I will say that I do believe that's when yeah. we just, you know, got closer. So yeah, fast forward from then, me and mommy, we're like two peas in a pod now. She, she really is my best friend. We joke about it. Um, I mean, I'm still really introverted. I still don't really have a lot of friends. But I'm dealing with it in different ways and better ways as more of like a young woman type of thing than as a kid. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. know that I have the full support of my parents mm -hmm. when I do that. So. Oh, wow, Samara, that is a lot. That is a I lot. So guys, if you have any questions, please just put them in the chat and we're going to um, ask them. So how many days did you stay in hospital? I was in, I went in Sunday. I left Friday, mommy. So there were two instances, right, Dolly? So with the actual self-harm incident, she was mm -hmm. actually in the EU for seven days. Okay. Uh, and then from there, again, as she mentioned, we were not able to take her home. We did have to take her to a, a mental health facility for three days. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there were a couple of things that my husband and I wanted to make sure did not happen, even in that environment. We did want her to, to be healed. We, we, and so... And, and, I, and I can't stress enough, we had such amazing doctors mm -hmm. who were committed to helping us save her life. Mm -hmm. uh, we also understood the role that our faith played in this mm -hmm. and the role that the Lord played in navigating and sending us the right people to help us. Um, mm -hmm. As part of that, we were also very sensitive and we said, we knew that she was going to need therapy. We knew that there was going to need to be a counselor to help us navigate this, right? This was not something, I don't want it to seem as if, you know, we just miraculously did this. We had help. We made sure that we had access to resources. Uh, I was very vocal and her advocate while she was in ICU, I did not leave her side. I did not leave the room. Um, mm -hmm because I wanted her to hear me. I knew that she could hear me and that she, I wanted, we wanted her to know that we were there every step of the way. So that's the first piece. Mm -hmm. The second piece, we were also very sensitive in that we did not want there to be a situation where as opposed to helping us to heal and deal with whatever the needs were, we did not want it to be a situation where she was immediately medicated or over-medicated. Mm -hmm. uh, that can happen to black and brown children. Uh, when they are given access to therapy, psychotherapy, uh, therapists, we, we knew that we wanted somebody and we were very vocal. We said that we are believers, we are Christians. We want somebody who can provide us with Christian counseling that is anchored in our beliefs and our belief systems. Uh, we were very vocal to say, you cannot and will not medicate her without our express permission. And we knew that we weren't going to give that. Um, because we did not want it to be something where now there is medication and not that medication does not work, but we did not want it to be something that was just a tool that was automatically thrown at her. Okay. Uh, we, we wanted there to be a level of advocacy and transparency. So we did not want them to just use that in those three days to keep her sedated and not address the root cause. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, 
So that was very important to us. Um, coming out of that, as she mentioned, with you know the pandemic, for us it was a gift. It was the hardest. Get we 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 fought for her, mm -hmm. but we but we also fought for our family, right? Uh, because the reality of it is, and I know, I know that there may be mothers and fathers that either are on the call now have a child that is wrestling with this, uh, or have gone through it themselves, or may see this in the future. I don't take it lightly that when we were discharged from the hospital, she was with us. Not every parent gets to leave with their child still alive. Mm -hmm. And so I, I want to honor that. Um, what I also often share is, even though I, we still had her, as her mother, I still found myself grieving and mourning. Mm -hmm. I was grieving and mourning the child I thought she was, right? Because as parents, we have this identity of who we believe our children are, mm -hmm. how strong they are, what their weaknesses are, what their needs are, right? And as they get older and they become better able to articulate what those needs are, what their personality is, what their belief system is, when it doesn't line up with who we have seen them to be, that's jarring. That's jarring. You know, when she shared about being lonely, you know, me and her dad was like, how are you lonely? Like, <laughs> you know, I, I, and I don't want to, you know, create this. It, it wasn't sarcastic. We didn't, we didn't understand that for her generation, the nature of relationship and, and social construct had moved virtual, mm -hmm. right? Community mm -hmm. connection was all happening virtually. So, you know, we're like, okay, but wait a minute. Like you see your friends and like, y'all are like together all day. What do you mean you have like, say what? Like give them, you know, it was like, well, so-and-so wants to call me like, okay, so give them the house phone number. <laughs> like the, the house, we have a home number. Just have them call. Like you can take the phone in your room. Like we don't, we didn't understand it. Um, and so we had to, we had to understand that a lot of the dynamic that was happening around building relationships, how you interact either with girls or even with boys, right? How do you understand the dynamics now? And it went back to, again, like we, we could not keep everything from her. That's not realistic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's not realistic and so we had to navigate that and the pandemic was a gift as she came home it put her and I together every day and every, mm -hmm. every day um some days we took rides like you know and, it, and if you remember with the you know the beginning of the pandemic you know it was like okay everybody was stuck at home mm -hmm. and for us it was like no we're not stuck we're safe at home okay we're safe here Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was, let's take rides. Let's go to the lake, stick your head out the window and scream. I don't want this to be another instance of you not having outlets. And then it also became, and you can tell me anything. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and the catch 22 for a parent is when you put it out there that they can tell you anything, they're going to try that. And you've got to be ready for how your body language shows up. Mm -hmm. uh, do you reject? you know, viscerally what they're saying. Um, how do you listen without judgment? How do you listen it with grace? You know, how do you 
know when to listen and it's she's just venting she's not asking me for advice she's not asking me about my opinion she's not asking me what i would do she just needs me to listen and my antenna mm -hmm. got more sensitive like okay she's just she's just going off right now right and i had to learn to listen and take that in it taught me how to pray for her better how to cover her um it helped me to navigate and say okay to my husband like today was a tough day you know be gentle with her give her grace or you know she's going to come to you there's some things she wants to talk to you about so i need you to fix your face husband get your face right um <laughs> you know so that you can hear her and she can see the love and not disagreement mm -hmm. um or you know a lack of interest we had to learn that mm -hmm. we had to learn all of that um she we, we like i said we got her therapy uh the question about the phone, that was something that me and my husband, we committed to prayer, we, but we understood that if we say that we are going to trust her and trust each other, there has to be an outward manifestation of that trust. Mm -hmm. There had to be a way that we were showing her that we were trusting her. I'm not going mm -hmm. to tell you that I didn't, you know, now to her, yes, we handed her the device and we said, but we are trusting you. And by then we all understood the gravity of saying we trust each other mm -hmm. and that when something happens what and we've instilled we tried to instill that in all of the children and the young people that no matter how bad you think the truth is no matter how uncomfortable the discipline or the consequence that may be mm -hmm. it will it will always be better than a lie mm -hmm. because you'll have to tell 10 to cover the one mm -hmm. right Trust is the thing that we can't get back, right? That mm -hmm. that's the, those are the deposits and withdrawals that we're making into each other in this relationship. Mm -hmm. and, and the other piece was, and if you come to me with a hard question, then I love you enough to tell you the truth. Even if that meant that I had to, I had to say some things that may have made me feel like, you know what, she's not gonna respect me as a mother. She's not gonna, you know, it's like, we've been through things i think that the pandemic and then coming out of the suicide attempt for her smart keep me honest it humanized us for her yeah right we weren't just these parents that know all say all do all it's like no we don't have an answer but we commit to come back to you when we have an answer you know mm -hmm. we were navigating scoliosis and like she said her being in pain on a daily basis that rewires your brain that impacts how you make decisions how you think it impacted all of those things and we were literally having to navigate when is the right time how do we approach this mm -hmm. uh, so it was it was all of these things but these three plus years they were a gift mm -hmm. because we didn't have work distractions we didn't have things to keep us busy mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. or things that were more priority she was the priority mm -hmm. we were mm -hmm. we were our house our home who we were to each other was the priority mm -hmm. and we had to put the work in hmm. and some days weren't pretty <laughs> some days yeah i can imagine yeah so, so tamara what was the toughest thing you had to tell your mom because when when now you have to speak openly and um tell it as it is i'm sure there's it was a new thing for you right to now mm -hmm. tell her exactly what you think maybe about what she's done to you or how she's handled a certain situation what was the if you don't mind sharing and if it's shareable yeah. what is it what was the toughest thing 
you had to tell your mom and how did you prepare yourself because i know it takes guts you know mm -hmm. right you're like how am i gonna put it how, what was the toughest thing you had to tell your mom um i think it was a couple of things so the first thing was really just you know, when you're a kid, you're used to getting corrected by your parents. You're used to being told, hey, do this, do that, or hey, you didn't do that the right way. But it's very difficult to imagine it almost being flipped and like telling your parents, hey, I don't like that you did that. Or that was very scary because when I was younger or even just leading up, it wasn't, you know what I'm saying? It just was never an idea that you would tell your parents that you didn't like something they did. That was, that was, wasn't a question it wasn't something that you figured out how to phrase it was just a no it was you know if you ask something and you don't like the answer deal with the fact that you don't like the answer on your own time it's not something that we're going to talk about it's not something that we're going to debate about so i think just kind of i don't think i said it directly at first i think it was just kind of in sharing my story like letting my mom know wait did mommy leave I think she dropped off by mistake. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Yeah, but you can go on. She'll come on. Okay. Um, yeah, I think it was really just letting them know, like, hey, I didn't like the way you did this. Or I didn't like the way that you talked to me when you said that. Or, you know, hey, the way that you handled things that night, it mm -hmm. contributed to why I did what I did. Or it contributed to the feeling that led to me being okay with whatever came after the decision that I made. So I think that was probably the hardest part, not just hard because I was worried for myself, hard because I still love them. I don't want to tell my parents, hey, you're the reason why this happened. You know, that still felt very cruel. It still felt very, you know, I, I felt guilty in mm -hmm. such a way. But you know like she said there were just conversations that we had to have and so i would think that you know just kind of having that ongoing conversation of the things that they did that worked and the things they did that, that did just really didn't work mm -hmm. that 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 was hard um additionally another really hard conversation that i had so addressing the scoliosis mm -hmm. um we had had multiple kind of on again off again conversations about surgery because mm -hmm. it kind of got to the point to where there was no way to really fix or alleviate any of my pain without the surgery and it was just kind of always you know we would get up to a point and then it would stall or we would get up to a point and then we would stop and i think a lot of that did come from the fear that my parents had about what that process would look like and i think it was maybe about a year later not even a year maybe want, no yeah it was more on. than a year hold after on. the hold on for a minute uh, Onika, can you request again so that I can bring you in? I don't think I can just bring you in without requesting. Sorry, you can go ahead. No, no, no problem. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I saw someone who just said that I didn't want to blame them. And it was, it was yes, because I was still very much so aware of the part that I played. I was by no means um, innocent. I was by no means um, just a victim. There were things that we both did that contributed to how we felt about each other for a very long time. So I didn't want to just say, hey, mom, hey, dad, this is what you did. This is the reason, you know what I'm saying? But it was just trying to communicate those things in the best way. But, you know, one of those things that did kind of give me a little bit of resentment with my parents was that we never kind of dealt with the scoliosis. And it was something that I had been complaining about and talking about for a very long time. And it was, you know, we're going to pray on it. We're going to pray. We're going to see what the best route is. Kind of still stemming from that fear of what surgery was going to look like. And I think maybe about a year 
later, I, I believe it was around February of 2021, I think I had done like some research on my own and I just kind of went in my parents' room because at this point I was very comfortable with just talking to them. So I just mm -hmm. kind of went to them and I was like, look, I need to talk to you guys about something. Um, I decided that I'm going to get surgery. So I need you guys to figure out what you need to figure out as far as insurance and doctors, but I cannot continue living my life like this mm -hmm. because no part of life is enjoyable when you were consistently in pain. It, no, no, no part of it. The phone was nice. It was great, but that was still, that wasn't the biggest thing. If I could have had a phone or be pain-free, I would have chose the pain-free. Mm -hmm. So I would say that was also another very difficult conversation I had to have with them. It did take courage for me to just kind of let them know, look, I know that y'all are scared, but I was kind of past the point of being scared. I just kind of wanted to do it and, you know, get it done with and just, you know, begin the process of healing. So I think that was another, you know, pretty hard conversation, but it was a different kind of hard. Mm -hmm. It wasn't fearful. Mm -hmm. I wasn't scared. I mm -hmm. wasn't, you know what I'm saying? It was just, you know, how do I bring this to them in this, in the best way? So she told us that of the times that she was, um, the difficult conversation she had, she had to have with you. But now I want to, to you to tell us, um, as, um, as a mom and given the, the, um, things you've gone through mm -hmm. and I can only imagine how difficult and how scary it was to potentially lose your, your, your daughter, you know, and I can, I can imagine feeling like you failed because I know that that's how I would have felt, you know, like well, I've done this wrong. What have I done? What have I done wrong? What would your advice be to parents, especially those of us? And I, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking for the Kenyan community. We, we also grew up in the, you do as I do. Uh, don't ask questions. It's because I said it. So it's going to be because I said it. What would your advice be to fellow moms and dads who are in that space? And, and I think it's a very rigid space to be in. Uh, what would you say? And, and what have you done to forgive yourself? Uh, we have maybe 15 more minutes. So okay. try and be brief. Yes. Yes. Uh, all great questions. So you're absolutely right. Going through the process of walking with her, that part was hard. The shame was harder. Uh, the shame, the guilt, the feeling like how 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 does something you know this person is life where we had the best of intentions and desires for her? How do we end up here? Um, it was difficult because there were not a lot of people that I felt comfortable sharing that conversation with. I had a few very, very close friends. Um, my best friend literally came to the hospital and she's probably the only other person outside of very, very close family members that I told. Mm -hmm. um, it was a daily conversation and dialogue that me and my husband had, right? Um, it was feeling like I am the worst mother. Who's, who, how, how, you know, we're getting here. It is a reflection on me. It is a reflection on us. Uh, it felt very much like we were broken, right? Mm -hmm. We were broken. Um, walking through the hospital journey specifically, I remember being, it being very, very difficult because it was, it triggered a traumatic response for me because the most I spent time I spent in the hospital was going back to my childhood, right? Like, mm -hmm. so the real 
reason that, you know, my mother was there, I could never divulge. Mm -hmm. So what you learn is like in these incidences where she could be taken away from us, right? What if they decide that we're not fit? Like we could lose, we could have lost her, but we could lose her. Um, so there were all of those feelings. Um, there were the feelings the first few weeks that she was home of not being able to sleep because I had to go and check to make sure she was breathing in her room. I didn't feel like I could sleep through the night because I needed to know that she was okay, that she wasn't going to self-harm again. Um, so it, it was those instances. Um, how did I forgive myself? It has been a process. It has, it has been a process. It has been um, a journey of quite honestly going back again and forgiving my parents. Um, understanding that, like you said at the beginning of our conversations, you know, these, these babies don't come with books. They don't come with maintenance manuals that tell us what happens. Like, what, you know, how do you not break them? <laughs> you know, uh, how, do you, how do you nurture them? How do you hold on just tight enough, but know when to let go and how to let go? What happens if you let go or when you let go and it backfires? So it's all of those things. It's, it's just become an effort of realizing that I had, just like we had to extend her grace to trust us again and for us to trust her, my husband and I, I had to walk out a journey of trusting ourselves individually again and extending grace. Um, I'm not going to get everything right. Um, you know, when you have done all of these things you're dealing with, you know, perfectionism, you want the perfect family, right? Mm -hmm. There's everything that you project. It's like, how does this amazing, smart, creative, beautiful baby, did I, Lord, did I break her? You know, knowing that my parents did the best that they could with the tools that they had or didn't have. Mm -hmm. So understanding her led me to understand my mother even more. Mm -hmm. It helped me to understand my father even more. And so I had already gone through a process of healing with them, but healing like everything else is an onion, right? Mm -hmm. It happens in layers, mm -hmm. it happens in, in levels and dimensions. And so sometimes it, when it comes up, I have to remember, you know what? Now she's 18. There are things that she's going to have to experience. There are heartbreaks. There are disappointments. There are things that she is going to have to experience. And I have to trust that they will make her I have to trust that if we keep our relationship good, when those things happen, we can be beside her. Mm -hmm. We can't take the blow for her, right? We, we are the type of parents that even in the midst of all of this, we say that as you grow into an adult and a young adult, there are some consequences that we can't get you mm -hmm. out of. That's why it's so important to think about your choices because they're going to, the consequences will be yours. Mommy and daddy can walk with you through it, but we can't take it away. And I don't know that we want to take away all consequences, right? Mm -hmm. Because if we all think back, that's how we learned, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Something that we did or wanted didn't work. It backfired and the like. Um, so it was really, it all, oh, every step of the way, every chapter of the way has been about forgiveness, either forgiveness of self, forgiveness of each other, mm -hmm. um, and figuring it out every day. Because I would love to tell you, yes, this is three plus, plus years on. And we get it right every day. We don't, we don't, you know, and my tone, I can see her. Now I can sense when she locks down. And so I take a minute and I'm like, you know what? Let me come back. I apologize for my tone. Mm -hmm. I meant what I said, but I understand that, that the tone I delivered it in 
did something to you. What's going on? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or she'll come back and she'll be like, you know what? I'm sorry. And then we've got to repurpose to move on. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Um, and just a, forgive each other for it. I think that's a, a very uh, big lesson that we have to learn as parents to be, yeah. to, to be vulnerable enough and humble enough to ask our children for forgiveness, you know, to tell them, I'm sorry I did this. Please forgive me because you know when you're yelling and your tone is harsh or your tone is out of anger, but um, it's very um, humbling as a parent to come to your, to your child and tell them you're sorry. But also we are modeling the, the behavior that we expect them to show. So how do we expect our children to apologize to us when they're wrong and we, we can't apologize, we've never modeled that behavior to them. They don't know how to apologize because they've never seen us apologize. So that's a very good um, take home lesson. I'd like us to go to some of the questions. Somebody, somebody asked, Samara, do you journal? I did. I think I saw someone, someone did ask me a question about cutting. Yeah. Um, someone had asked me how, someone I believe asked how I was hiding it or um, how I was nursing my cuts. Yes, Honestly, yes. they were in a very, vis- they were in a very visual place. They were on my thighs. I was in middle school and we had uniforms so i was wearing like pleated skirts to school it was never really noticed honestly in transparency um i also if i if i felt like it was noticeable or visual i would just you know cover with my legs i mean with my hands or something like that or just the way that i was sitting it wasn't really noticeable um so i didn't really have to try a whole lot it was maybe about three six maybe like 12 or 13 on my legs um the beginning ones were really light and the the later ones were maybe a little bit deeper but i didn't really have to try too hard to to hide them i hope that answers your question and on the other side you know that's that was probably one of the earliest indications that we knew that there was something going on with her Mm -hmm. um you know mentally we're like something something is something is, is going on you know didn't know what it was didn't didn't know how to help her clearly, um, but we started to just watch more. Um, it was just a few months between the whole cutting situation and the self harm, you know, incident. So again, that was a really, really that was a tough six months for sure, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, you look back at it, and and the reality of it is, middle school is hard for everybody. Like everybody is trying to figure out their identity. Mm-hmm. They're trying to figure out who they are, who their friend group is, who is their tribe, right? Who are the people that want to have you know, you know, emotional and social connections with? And in the absence of that, it's like, where do I take those feelings? Um, that was never something. I don't think that we ever verbalized that when we were younger, especially not at my age. Not in not in my generation, right? That mm-hmm. these feelings are so big, I've got to harm and hurt myself to, for a re, there to be a release. That was not something that I was familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, we had different ways. Um, I was very much a compartmentalizer um, because the traumatic, you know, environment that I grew up in. I learned very quickly. Okay, home is crazy. I have to put that in a box. And when I'm working, when I'm, you know, at school, when I'm doing things in my life, that is a very separate box. That was my survival skill. Mm -hmm. Um, 
just a different coping mechanism. And what many times when there are multi-generations or different cultures, you have to realize that how that shows up, how that pain shows up for them is not going to be the way that it showed up for us. Yeah. That can sometimes be the biggest, mm-hmm. right? That can be the biggest mm-hmm. disconnect. Um, for me, I, and I saw somebody ask the question, do you journal? Yeah. I'm gonna leave that question for her. I would, that was one of the biggest uh, outlets that I had. I, I didn't take my secrets to anyone else. I journaled, I wrote my, my secrets down. I, I wrote poetry, I had a place to put that. So mm-hmm. if I think about it, my, my, my mechanism was a bit different. Um, and it's still something that I go to now, my, my, my prayer journal in a very different way. But there are different mechanisms. It's just that we have to understand that what healing or what the tools and, and mechanisms toward healing and, and growth for our children and our children's children will probably not look the same mm-hmm. as it did for us. Um, there's a running joke that my brother and I have that, you know, there are two things that we say, you know, I think a lot of times, and I don't know if it's the same way in the Kenyan culture, so I'd love to hear somebody share this in the chat as well. Here, at least in, in African-American culture here in the U.S., there is this resilience. You know what? We, we've been through it all. We've seen it all. It's all happened to us, and we just, we, 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 we sling it on our back and we carry it. We don't, we don't complain. We don't tell anybody. Um, it, it's very much so what goes on in this house stays in this house. You don't tell anybody mm-hmm. what else is happening in our household. You know, um, that's not their business. Um, so so th- there was very much that dynamic going on. You don't necessarily tie it to shame. You tie it to, you know what, you don't let anybody in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what I think has happened is as it's become much more acceptable to talk about mental health and how we feel emotionally and spiritually. What people in my generation are realizing is, yes, we went through a lot, we saw a lot, and we're not okay, right? So let's go ahead and call a thing a thing. Everybody's not okay. Mm-hmm. And so now we're, people are giving each other grace and permission to have those harder transparent conversations. Um, but you gotta be willing to do it and do it scared and press into it it hurts, it's uncomfortable, but it's like any other wound. If you keep taking care of it and tending it, it'll heal and that place cannot just go back to where it was, but it can be stronger. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, I would not have wanted this, you know, this series or chain of events to happen for her, but it has created a level of understanding and knowing who she is for herself that we you know been a gift and a silver lining that has come out of this mm-hmm. it has strengthened our faith it has not it has not made our faith weaker it it actually solidified mm-hmm. our faith and it gave her her faith for herself mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying yes yeah. for those of us that are, that have a, a faith or belief system our young people don't always know how to have that relationship outside of us they don't know that they can pray or that they can go to the go to God for themselves. This created and gave her an opportunity to have an encounter that while we were with her, it was not our encounter. Mm-hmm. And that became a, a, a beautiful byproduct of this. So Samara, do you journal? Yes. So yes, those questions. Um, I did. In middle school, I did a lot of journaling and I did write a lot of poems. 
So I did do that in middle school. That was an outlet. I kind of stopped around high school. By the time my senior year came, I didn't, and I, I haven't since then. I haven't journaled as avidly as I did in middle school as I used to, but I am still going to therapy. So my therapist, you know, talks to me about how journaling would also be a good outlet. But I just find that be, as I'm able to talk more with my parents, that it's not, I don't need it as much. There's not a whole lot that I don't talk about or I don't bring to them, especially with my mom. So I don't mm -hmm. find that journaling is as, you know, integral. I see someone asked me if I, the surgery, I did. Um, actually pretty fast. So we had the conversation in February of 2021. I got the surgery June 15th, 2021, um, which was also, a, it was a, it was a hard, it was hard. Um, number one, being back in a hospital bed was hard for mm -hmm. me. Um, the, the experience of being in the hospital the first time, um, was probably, if not the hardest part, probably close to second. Um, there was a point where I was coming out of like the sedation and stuff like that. And I think I was like fighting. I, it, it was a lot. So that just the feeling of being back in a hospital bed with the beeping and the IVs and the noise, that was very, very triggering in some aspects. So that was something that, you know, I had to work through. I think there was a point where even we would go for the appointments, the smell would make me sick. It would make me nauseous or like I would just be like doing the dishes or, you know, in my room and like the smell would come back and I would get sick to my stomach. Um, but the I would say the experience of us getting the surgery was hard, but it was having gone through that experience the previous year and our relationship being built up for it. I would say it went it was beautiful and painful at the yeah at the same time. Yeah. So but yes, I did get it. I got the surgery. I'm like two and a half years post-op. I'm doing great, not really in pain anymore. So, good. Yeah. Yay. Good. It's not so all sad stuff, I swear. Let me, let me, I promise. Let me read some comments, right? And and Samara, you can also mm -hmm. check to see this, this question specifically to you, but um, I see someone saying, um, that was my mother that used to make me so upset, so I always explain why, and some things like tattoo is, okay. So Penny is saying that her mom used to be the, I say it so kind of parent and you know, it used to make her so upset. So now she does it differently. Um, and then Annie's the one who asked about the cards. Uh, Penny says she gave her children phones at the age of 12. They were all, all on. I also did not snoop on them, but I spent a lot of time teaching them, uh, teaching them about online choices, especially bullying and what they share. Um, and says they have a daughter that has gone through all the things that Sam Samara has gone through in terms of self-harm. It's such a touch and go situation. Mm -hmm. um, maybe Anne can, can uh, link up with Onika, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Onika says she understands she's a mom, so she was understanding something you say. Um, and somebody was laughing at you because you were talking about the house phone, saying that you know there's the, the, you have a phone in the house. So she's like, you did not move with the new technology. Jen says, I went through the exact same situation. Hearing her share her story brings me back to an incident with my daughter. Um, and then somebody, let me read somebody else's. Um, Evelyn says, I love the way you have accountability with each other. I think that's admirable too. 
Uh, Anne says, I love the fact that spirituality and religious, re religiosity has played a big role in the execution of how you handle your daughter's needs. Evelyn says, openness is such a good thing to have in any family. Let me see. They're the only ones commenting, huh? <laughs> but um, oh, Angie, Angie says, thanks for sharing your story. Oh, no, she was asking about the surgery. So you answered that already. Mm -hmm. um, Penny says, I'm so glad I happened to be online. I have loved this conversation. Well, we are coming to an end, guys. Unless uh, you have any, it's illegal to say sorry in the African homes. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> said that. <laughs> Penny is saying she's learning how to say sorry right now. Um, Evelyn says, Tamara, you are a brilliant young lady, mature than your age. You are amazing and made in God's own image. You have a great future ahead of you. You have a great purpose among young people of your, of your generation. Wait, generation and many generations to come. God bless you. Thanks for sharing. And says oh, absolutely you. the same in our culture. Yeah, she was talking about the, you know, so this conversation i think is very important has been very important i really want to thank you onika <laughs> and samara for sharing your story we don't even have enough time like we would have wanted to go on and on and on but i know that you have to to um to 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 stop at at, at some point and if if necessary if i get you know a let's we want onika we want samara <laughs> then maybe we'll bring you on another time but samara this, what would you say to your fellow kids uh, who are who are going through what you are going through some of the things that maybe your perception was wrong so for example you thought that your parents would not understand some of the things and maybe they would have had you brought it to them what would you advise your fellow young uh, youngsters so that they don't go through what you go went through um just that it never hurts to try um i have the blessing of having parents who are still in some a lot more gentle than other people so i i almost feel kind of you know lost in a way if you're going through something that is much harder than me maybe sitting down and praying and having a conversation isn't the way to do it but just you know from where i'm sitting i would say two things that you know it never hurts to try and then to also parents are humans too they are grown-up kids who had kids and so as hard as it is sometimes you know as a kid it's sometimes like you you judge your parents you do you judge them very harshly when they do things that hurt you it's like you should know better you should know better they can't know better and they also can't know if you don't talk so I would just say that suffering in silence isn't better. Um, it's not going to be worse for them to know than for them to not. And then I would also just say that to also where you're able to prioritize your relationships outside of yourself because and, and know which ones are healthy, because those are going to be the ones that are going to be there to help you out in ways that you probably wouldn't even know, whether it's with other family members. I'm not saying, you know, just with friends, but um, even coming out of the situation we talked about me with me and my mom, my relationship with my cousin grew a lot. You know, she was like, I didn't know you were going through this. I didn't know that you were, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, you can talk to me, you can come in. So that even opened up a really big level of hum humanity for the two of us to be like, you know, we don't have to just giggle and kiki every time we talk to each other. We can have real conversations. We can be honest with each other. So I would just say those two things. Okay. Thank you so much, um, Samara.
So what you're telling us is communication is important. Find a trusted person. It might not be your mom or your dad, but find a source of trust that you can go to. And it might be the guidance counselor in school, you know, because they too can help, you know. Mm -hmm. And for the parents, we cannot be the days. I I like the way Samara said, like it was not going to be because I said so, like they had to give you a reason. And I think that that's holding your parents accountable. And, you know, we can no longer be the parents who say, because I said so. And we we should also be very aware of when we project our fears on our children and when our traumatic childhood shows up in our parenting styles. So this is a lot of stuff to do and to think, you know, to go and, you know, food for thought. But I want to thank you so much, Oneka and Onika and and Samara. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I would just, I would just, I would just offer to the parents. You know, I, I just want to take a second to engage raising mm-hmm. young people, especially cross cultural. It's hard work. I, I just want to encourage you to just know that you are doing your absolute best. Uh, our young people, they don't always see it. They don't always know the, the work and the intention and the desire for the absolute best for them. They don't always see it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, it feels like even doing the best, we feel like the bad guy, right? Um, that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I would just encourage and say, you know, know that you're doing the best that you possibly can and it's okay to ask for help. Um, one of the biggest things that came out of this, even as we've been talking with not just her, but all of the young people in our family, my brother and I had an aha moment that when we talk to our children about what we've been through, for us, it is an experience. For them, it is a story. How you hear a story versus how you interpret it because it's been your lived experience is going to be different. So we have to find ways to continue And that doesn't mean we don't share our experiences, just understand that our experiences are ours. They may not be theirs and that they are experiencing and hearing it as a story. It is a story to them. And so if that helps to just anchor and say, you know, why don't they get it? Why don't they feel our passion? It's, it's, you know, it's because it's our experience. We lived it for them. They're hearing it. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so it's going to be different, just like we had to understand that when she was crying out in pain, it was her experience. And we had to realize it's not just a story. So for us, mm-hmm. it was really just understanding each other's perspective. So just a word of encouragement to all the mommies and by extension, the daddies and papas and aunties that are on the call. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for sharing your story, for being vulnerable, for being open. I know that you're gonna change uh, relationships elsewhere. Thank mm-hmm. you. And somebody said, um, oh, Samara, they are grown-up kids who have kids. That is such a powerful close. And Karen said, can't wait for the next podcast. Thank you so much, everyone. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, the Cornelius fa- family and your dad. I'm hoping to have him <laughs> because we need to, to hear it from the dad's perspective. Yeah. So I'm hoping that we're going to have him soon. Uh, and we'll keep in touch. Thank you so much. Have a good Thank night, everyone, so and a beautiful uh, rest of your week. Good night, Bye. everyone. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.